In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So it's a debate that goes back for millennia. Are great athletes made or are they born? Well, our guest today explores this question in his controversial book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. His name is David Epstein. Really fascinating book. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss what the latest research says about top athletic performance. Is it a nature versus nurture or is it a combination of both? Well, we talk about the differences, the genetic differences between men and women and how those differences have given men the upper hand in athletic performance like sprinting and football and things like that. Uh, Then we also discuss what this means, this research means for parents who have kids, right? Should you invest a lot of money and time into your kid into a sport that they might not ever make it to the top echelons or even like college level in that sport. Really fascinating discussion, a lot of food for thought. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's get on with the show. David Epstein, The Sports Gene. David Epstein, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, so your book is The Sports Gene, and it's about... The, the effect or the role of genetics in athletic ability, and not just athletic ability, it carries over to other uh, aspects as well. But before we understood the role genes play in our athletic performance, our physical abilities, what was the understanding or what was the role of genetics before our understanding of genetics? I mean, wh- how did we approach athletics? Was it just a practice or if you, if you just practice a lot, you get better? What was it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, from the from kind of the perspective of sports scientists, things had, had whipsawed, basically. So there was there was a period, you know, maybe starting early, early half of the 20th century, where there was this idea that there were just any, someone who was athletic, this sort of medium height, medium weight man would be the best for all sports, and you just had to pick him out and, uh, you know, maybe sometimes test his reaction speed or something, and then you just put them in any sport you want. And so it was sort of this idea that there was a, a template, like very genetic, and then it, the pendulum totally swung back in the other direction to the idea that genes have no, other than for height, because it's easily observable by everyone, have no part to play in athletic expertise, sort of that birth of the 10,000-hour rule, this idea that what we think of as genetic talent is really just a manifestation of thousands of hours of practice. And there is no such thing, you know, g- genetics, the the work and practice and motivation overwhelms any reasonable effect of genetics, so we shouldn't even bother studying genetics involved in athleticism. And that's kind of where it was when uh, when I decided to pick it up. Yeah, so this this idea of the 10,000-hour rule, I mean, I love it because I don't think I'm naturally gifted, a naturally gifted athlete, but I love that concept. Like if I practice hard enough, if I work hard enough, well, eventually I'll get there. Um, but the research is showing that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and, and to specify... Insofar as the 10,000-hour rule is shorthand for 
a lot of very high quality and, and quality probably more important than quantity in many cases practice is really important absolutely that's great but a lot of the people writing about it were using it to say that well genes actually don't matter and that's in fact not not what's being found at all in fact what's kind of coming out of uh, the genetic revolution in exercise and sports is the same as what came out of medical genetics and that was say because you have a different gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than I do you might need three Tylenol to get the same effect where I only need one or, or maybe it doesn't work for you at all and we're seeing the same thing in sports training that the amount that anyone improves in response to a given training stimulus is mediated by their genes so no one person's 10,000 hours is another person's 10,000 hours. And in fact, all of these hours figures that people throw out are just averages that have these tremendously disparate ranges. So even in, you know, even in things like um, chess, which requires a lot of the same perceptual expertise that sports like, uh, like football and soccer do, it takes 11,053 hours on average to become an international master to learn all those cognitive skills. But some people make it in 3,000 hours because they learn each chunk of information faster, and some people make it are at 25,000 hours still being tracked and haven't made it. And so really when we look at any of these hour figures, there's this huge, huge uh, range of hours it takes to get anywhere, and a lot of that is based on the intricacies of people's talents. So, so my argument is that we really need to help people find some of those hidden talents so that they don't need 10,000 hours. Yeah, yeah. So you talk uh, to explain this idea that the 10,000 hour rule is there's discrepancies, right? You can have, you can master it in a few hours or it might take you a long time. Yeah. You give the example of these two high jumpers, which I thought was really yeah. fascinating. Can you tell the story about these two guys? Yeah, sure. This that I call the tale of two high jumpers. So one of the high jumpers was this guy, Stefan Holm, and uh, he was a Swedish guy who became obsessed with high jump after seeing it on television at age five, starts jumping in his backyard, you know, has his father doesn't know anything about high jump, but builds him a set in the backyard. And he's, he's good, but he's not great. You know, he's, you, you wouldn't necessarily think, you know, with high jump, jumping kind of something you either got or, or you don't. And he's, he's good, again, but not great. He stays obsessed with it. He's ditching class in middle school to go jump. Um, and he's, he starts getting better and better little by little, improves actually one centimeter per year for 20 straight years uh, until he becomes the Olympic champion. He's, he's about five foot ten, clears a bar nearly eight feet, so he tied the record for the highest clearance over your own head. And, and he had like all these traits that we idealize in competitive athletes. When I first talked to him, he said, you know, I was asking about a girlfriend. He said, I don't have a girlfriend. High jump's my girlfriend. I can't cheat on her. And then when I went back to him, he's, he's married now, he has a little kid, and the kid's name is Melvin Holm, and that's not a typical Swedish name. His wife liked the name Melvin, and Stefan insisted that Win be somewhere in the kid's name. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of guy he was, you know, totally devoted to this and transformed himself into an Olympic champion. And at the World Championships I wrote about, he, a rival of his, a guy from the Bahamas, he, he, he gets a rival named Donald Thomas, and Donald wasn't a jumper at all for most of his life. He's talking trash about how good an athlete he is at lunch one day. He was a student at a small college in Missouri called Lindenwood. And the best jumper, a guy named Carlos on the track team who held the school record at six foot eight says, you're talking, you know, you're talking all that trash. You wouldn't even clear a bar of six foot six in competition. And Donald's like, well, yeah, I would. So Carlos goes and sets up a bar. Donald gets his sneakers, takes five steps and clears six foot six. So they move it up to six foot eight, takes seven steps, clears six foot eight, moves it up to six ten. Donald clears 6'10". Seven feet clears that. And then at which point Carlos stops him. He thinks he's going to hurt himself, takes him to the track coach. Says, coach, we got a seven-foot high jumper here. 
Coach doesn't believe it. They convince him. He calls the next track meet, Eastern Illinois University, gets a late entry for Donald. Donald's like wearing basketball shorts. He doesn't have a uniform yet. Clears seven foot five and sets that field house record. And there's pictures. I have pictures of him with his arms behind him because he's like not used to the feeling of falling backward coming down from seven foot five. So he turns pro. You know, after about eight months of training, who does he face in the world championships? But Stefan Holm. So one guy has about zero hours of training. One guy, Stefan Holm, estimated his lifetime training at twenty thousand hours. So those guys actually average ten thousand hours. And Donald ends up winning the world championship there. Actually, if, if Donald had any semblance of form for a high jumper. Like, Donald, he doesn't curl his back. He looks like he's, like, riding an invisible deck chair through the air. You know, he's, like, sitting straight up and, like, looking around. He had the highest center of mass jump ever. Had he had known, like, anything. Whereas De- Stefan's, like, curled, you know, like, his, his, his heels are, like, whispering in his ear. They're almost touched. And had Donald had any type of form, he would have shattered the world record. And so was, here are these two guys with these, com- you know, pretty straightforward physiological sport coming from complete polar opposite paths. And some of that that I went on to explain uh, had to do with their very special springs in the back of their legs, the Achilles tendon. Okay. I mean, what I thought was interesting, too, is you, you make the point that you know, we're just starting to scratch the surface of sports genetics. Um, but it seems like it, there's been sort of a natural sorting uh, amongst the various sports when it comes to genetics. For example, swimmers, because their arms are getting longer mm-hmm. uh, every mm-hmm. year. Um, runners, they're getting, you know, they have a certain, certain type of fast twitch muscle fiber, and then you're seeing that more and more often. How did that happen? Like, how did, is it just that people who had that capability, like they just, they, they excelled in that sport, so they just stuck with that sport? I mean, how did, how did that natural sorting happen? Yeah, that's some of it. So that, that natural sorting that I, I write about that the scientists who discovered it call the big bang of body types. So it's like the body types of of athletes who are successful got much, much more different from what they used to be. And it's called the Big Bang because if you, if you like plot on a graph that the changes, it looks like the expanding universe, you know, with all the galaxies flying away from one another. And the way it, it kind of started, and, and like you said, some of those, some of the changes are, are not even that visible. Like you said, you know, with the muscle fibers, some of them are very visible. Like elite female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine on average over the last 30 years because wow. it, it makes them easier for them to spin. So those kind of things are very visible. Um, and I mean, the most noticeable one in the NBA, right? There's one, a little more than one in 10 men in the NBA are at least seven feet tall, but that's incredibly rare in the general population. So if you know an American man between the ages of 20 and 40, who's at least seven feet tall, there's a 17% chance he's a current NBA player. That's how rare that is. But the, the way it started to happen was, was partly, I mean, honestly, for, for most of at least international sports history, the only places competing were like Great Britain and places that Great Britain had colonized in a serious way. And, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, sports really opened up to the world. And what happened in the NBA is kind of a microcosm of what happened everywhere. So 1983, the NBA strikes an agreement with the players, making them partners in the league where they get shares of ticket sales, television revenue, all that kind of stuff. And the sport goes global, and suddenly anyone who can play in the NBA wants to because the financial rewards and fame are so great, and the team starts scouting internationally and all that kind of stuff. And overnight, overnight, that was actually the, the proportion of men in the NBA went from 5% to 11% in one season when they started doing that. And then all these other unique body traits started emerging, guys with, like, my arms are the same length as my height, whereas the average NBA player is six six and a half with seven-foot long arms. Wow. And so this sort of sort of natural self-selection started happening in sports where 
the body types that took more people got filtered out at lower levels because they didn't have the advantages of this specialized body type and it kept getting more and more specialized. And then once it got to a certain level in a lot of sports, then people started actually looking for that stuff. Once some of those things, you know, once we realized we should measure those things, like water polo players, for example, their forearm bone is getting longer in relation to their overall arm that it used to be because that makes for a more forceful throwing whip. And the exact opposite is true for rowers, so who pull stuff toward them. And so once people started to realize that these trends were taking place, you know, just by kind of doing physiology on their athletes, then they started proactively looking for it. And it's, in some cases, been incredibly successful. Like Great Britain, who hosted the last Olympics, they have, um, actually, they have a woman who just set a world record in rowing who, like, hadn't rowed three years before she won the gold medal at the Olympics. And they took her physiological measures you know, they used to come into play by accident. Now they know specifically. So I said, you know, you're, this is where you belong. Interesting. I mean, even though they're, they're specifically looking for certain physiologies and I guess certain genetics, are they still sort of squeamish about talking about it? Like openly, like, yeah, we're looking for someone with good genes. Cause you know, we have this history with eugenics and things like that, where people don't like to talk about sort of genetic determinism. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and, to, and to be honest, like the, Genetics has kind of a bad reputation for, I mean, a rule of thumb, I would say, is that genetics influence essentially everything, but determine very few things, right? So genes, there are no results or there are no, you know, nothing without both genes and environment. So I don't think people should think about genes in a deterministic way. The problem is like most of the news they get is like this week, there's the gene for this. And this week, there's the gene for promiscuity or for liking chocolate. And the fact is, 90% 90% of that stuff is actually false positives because in some cases the scientists and in most cases the journalists don't know how to evaluate the, the mess of those studies. Most of it's just crap. Um, but, yeah, no, there, and I think there's a reason reason to be squeamish. You know, I think when you go to, you know, you spend some time, you know, with like NFL or NBA uh, general manager, for example, and they're not going to, they're, they're a little less squeamish about saying talent exists even if they don't want to get into genes. Um, but in some countries, like when I was in Australia, which has what I think might be the premier sports science institute in the world, the Australian Institute of Sport, they, one of their head physiologists was telling me that in their grant proposals for research, because they actually fund a lot of sports performance research out there, and we don't really do that so much, um, they stopped using the word genetics, and instead they would substitute molecular biology and protein synthesis, which is the exact same thing. But they stopped using the word genetics because people were viewing it as deterministic and you should pigeonhole someone completely and all this kind of thing. I mean, I think the best approach is since we're learning about this this talent of trainability that has a genetic component, the best way we can use it instead of limiting people's options and say, well, you have to do this sport. So they, you, know, you can do whatever you want, but if you're not getting the experience you want over there, just so you know, you'd be really responsive to training over here. You know, and that's, 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 in some cases, it's already being used for sort of exercise for health. Um, but I think we do have to be vigilant about not being deterministic when it's not appropriate. So you have a section that I thought was really fascinating, the uh, genetic differences between male and female athletes and how that uh, yeah. uh, creates different results. What are the genetic differences and how um, do those genetic differences result in different athletic performances? Yeah, well, the single biggest one. So we all kind of we all start life on the on the path to being female. That's like the default fetus path. But you know, six weeks in, there's a gene um, on the Y chromosome called SRY. It's actually easy to remember, sex determining region Y gene on on the Y chromosome that basically um, starts the development of these cells that you know lead to testosterone. And once the testosterone 
uh, starts gushing. It starts arranging things in a male pattern in a way. So even even in the womb, men will have a longer forearm, for example, like for throwing than uh, or whatever. You not men, obviously, when they're in the womb, male <laughs> males yeah. um, than females, and and that's that gets really accentuated through puberty. So a lot of women actually their athleticism declines through puberty. Uh, so their vertical jump height will go down. Their their sprint speed. Not everyone, not the ones who go to the top, but but a lot of them. Um, because, you know, they get, um, fat gets deposited on widened hips, things like that. You know, that, that angle, the, the hips and the angle to the knee is why women tear their ACL at such an epidemic rate. Meanwhile, men are packing in more muscle fibers, even if they're not working out, even if you don't work out during puberty, you're going to get more muscle fibers. The testosterone causes the creation of red blood cells, so which are extremely important to endurance, more density of bones that can support more muscle, longer limbs in relation to the body, greater height, obviously. Um, certain bone structures, like the structure of the, the jaw and the forehead, become less susceptible to the kind of punch that would knock you out, for example. And so this whole host of traits that are useful for athleticism are accentuated in men and in some cases um, diminished in women. In fact, if you look at like things that are easy to measure, like world track records for kids, at nine years old, girls and boys are identical. There's no reason for them to even be competing differently. They're, they're indistinguishable. But at 14, they're like a universe apart. You can look at things. The, the, quarter, the record for a quarter mile, so one lap around outdoor track, for nine-year-old boys and girls is identical. And by 14, it's like five seconds different or something like that, you know, in a race that's under a minute. Wow. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. 
It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So, I mean, what's amazing in the past, I mean, I'd say half half century, women have made great strides in athletics because we've gotten over all this sort of silly pseudoscience where that you know, yeah. women engaged in activities, their, their uterus would fall out or like goofy stuff like that. Um, yeah. It wasn't but, that long ago that stuff was... Uh, yeah, I guess the, the, ski, the ski jump, that was the thing. Like women couldn't do the, yep. the ski jump because like something... Right, and that's happened. like... That's like one of the activities where they're actually like closest to men in too. That's Interesting. For ski jump. Well, but it was, with that, it, are while they're getting closer and closer to uh, the performance of male elite athletes, male athletes are still surpassing. Will there ever be a moment when women will be able to surpass an like an elite woman athlete will be able to surpass an elite male athlete, or the, are the genetics just that makes it almost impossible? I mean, you never know if there's a one-off, but as a rule, there's not going to be that time in the sports that we currently have. And in fact, that idea that, that female athletes are catching up is actually not true. There was a period where they were catching up, and it was largely due to the fact that they had not had um, opportunities to train and compete very much or for the sport to go global. And so when women started, their rate of progress was really kind of startling. And if you extrapolated that, it looked like they'd beat men in the 100 meters in the future. But now they've actually stagnated and in fact, men are opening the gap a little bit. And again, I usually turn to easily measurable sports because, you know, it's easy to make a concrete example. Yeah. Um, and so if you look in running, for example, in from the 100 meters to the ultra marathon, the difference between if you average the top 10 best men and top 10 best women in any given year, the difference is going to be 11%. That's basically what it is, what it always is, doesn't really close. Um, and it, it just kind of sticks there. And in fact, men are a little bit inching away. And I think part of that's because of this this 
mega doping era that set women's records kind of out of sight, unfortunately. So a lot of them are just stuck because those drugs are much more efficacious in women than they are in men. And so some of those records are stuck in the past. So, but there are sports like in, in long distance swimming, women come within 6% of men. You know, I think if we, again, ski jump is one where lightness is prized and women do really well. I think if we tailored more sports to use fine motor skills, that's something where women, you know, tend to outperform men, but we, we just have not, really arranged sports around those. So I think maybe we need some more sports, you know, so I think we'll see more high level women more, you know, maybe we'll have some more sports that, that cater to things that women are better at. Um, but in terms of the elite, elite performances, the, the gap's actually not closing at all. Interesting. So another kind of controversial aspect of genetics and sports is race. Um, mm-hmm. And so you talk about, so Jamaica is known for their sprinters. Yeah. And uh, you, you, there's a theory out there that's like with the warrior slave theory. Um, yeah. How did the, the Jamaicans' historical genetic past affect their ability to produce such world-class sprinters today? Yeah, so that, that warrior slave theory, I, I didn't, I, I grew up, you know, I got into track when I was young because I grew up running with Jamaican guys um, and you know, always curious to go there and didn't, didn't realize until I went there that there's this theory on the island that this, this autonomous region where a group called the Maroons live, they were these kind of uh, warrior slaves who who fought their way away from their masters and secluded themselves in this very treacherous area of the island, um, and and they just by being fierce they won their freedom a hundred years before official emancipation, and a lot of the great sprinters are from that region. Uh, it's like Usain Bolt right over the hill, you know, a woman a woman who's um, been winning a lot of uh, she won a couple world championships in the hundred meters is also right from that region. And so the people in that region kind of claim them and say, you know, they're part of our lineage. We were the strongest of, of, and the fiercest, and all these people are from our genetic stock. But when I looked at the, I went there with a geneticist, um, and he collected data, and, and so far the data does not look like that's the case. Um, the Maroons look very, very mixed, like other Jamaicans are. Um, so I don't, so, so far I think, um, you know, the evidence is against that, that, that story, even though it's a really nice story. Sure. Um, but, but there's some evidence that for more broadly people from that region. So if, since 1980, every man who's been in the Olympic 100 meter final, we boycotted the Olympics in 1980, um, has, whether they're from Portugal, um, you know, England, Canada, Jamaica, America, they all have some ancestry in this one tiny area on the coast of West Africa. Um, and that area happens to be like the highest malaria danger zone in the world. And there's evidence in the book that I talk about that, that a possible trade-off for protection from malaria, um, causes kind of a shift to a more explosive physiology or more fast twitch muscle fibers in people from that area. And of course, that's where, uh, we wrenched people from their homes and brought them to the United States. We're from that area. Um, and so, you know, the people from that area, you also, you, they basically disappear in international competition above the half mile. So they're disadvantaged for endurance sports, but, but just on average, you know, it just shifts the curve a little bit, but that makes a big deal for people at the end of the curve. Um, you're probably going to find more of them who are advantaged for explosive sports. And again, it's not to say that, that European people or white people in America can't have that physiology. It's just, it's just less common when you're only looking for the few best people in the world that being less common can matter a lot. So you uh, talk about Iditarod dogs. You have a chapter about these yeah. Iditarod dogs and this guy who bred. And you really read this thing thoroughly. Yeah, I know. It, it was a great book. So there's this guy named Zorro um, who wasn't like a really fast dog, but he was like a hardworking dog. 
And uh, yeah. this breeder just bred him bred dogs for hardworking. And I thought that was really interesting because, like, okay, yeah, again, like, I'm not an ath- a natural athlete, but I always kind of had this chip on my shoulder, like, well, if I work hard enough, I got the determination, I got heart, right? So I can, like, make it up for that. And I like that idea because it's sort of like it was in my control, right? My effort yeah. was in my yeah. control and my determination was in my control. But now there's research saying that genetics influences or might influence our determination too, or our grit. That's right. And, and so, and again, this is, this is where we should remember that genetics influences just about everything, but doesn't determine almost anything. Um, but the, that's right. So I knew, for example, when I was going into researching a book that like training we do impacts our dopamine system, you know, the, the system involved in pleasure and reward for whatever, sex, food, drugs, whatever. In, in the brain, and but I didn't know that there's a, a large body of work that shows the reverse is true too. Like the way that our dopamine system is set up, actually has a lot to do with what we're going to feel pleasure doing. If that's a certain kind of physical activity or whatever. And in, in these dogs, what happened was the speeds of Iditarod dogs plateaued after not that you know after not that long of breeding. And so I wrote about this guy Lance Mackey, who'd been like a drug addict, was really down and out, but his his father had helped invent the Iditarod and had won it once and he wanted to do it. So he got himself together and started getting dogs and he, he couldn't, he couldn't afford, you know, the, the ones that were bred to be the fastest and they were plateauing anyway. So he just went for these ones that would never stop going like that. He, you know, he had to chain them to get them to stop. And if he, you know, he tried to stop the sled, like he could hardly do it unless he, he you know, dug spikes into the snow and things like that. And so he started breeding, um, for those kinds of dogs who just wanted to always go. And then he won, yeah, I did ride four times in a row. And so then everybody started copying that strategy, and now it's, now it's the strategy. Like, you're not going for the fastest dogs. In fact, there, there's been some genetic analysis, and you can breed in certain dog breeds to make your dogs have, like, a greater desire or more motivation. And some of what's happening in their dopamine system is very similar to things we see in humans. Now, one thing, one thing I regret in the book is using the phrase, one of the scientists saying there is such a thing as couch potato genes, because while that's, kind of true, it's, you know, occasionally people have asked me, and they said, oh, so, so there really is a reason, like, I don't have to get up and exercise. And that's, first of all, where's that going to get you, you know? Do you really want justification for, you know, not being healthy or not being athletic? No. It means, you know, anyone who's ever been in a training group, like I was a, I was a Division One runner, and, you know, there, there are people you train with, there are guys you train with, some of whom have to be managed to train more, a lot of them, and some of whom have to be managed to train less because they'll overdo it. And so, you know, I think most people who have been to training group know that intuitively. We just never think about where that comes from. And so for the people who don't have that Zorro-like, you know, motivation to get up and move, I think um, those people just have to work on manipulating their environment a little more, whether that's with a training group or finding activity they like or, or whatever it is. You know, it's not, it's not a reason to give up. Yeah. I also should say, coming out of that research, it did make me, when I was looking at some of the, the research on mice who have a high drive to be active, and then you can give them like Ritalin, they stop moving around, is a little bit scary because you think about hyperactivity in kids, and it's basically a drive to move around, and you can give them a medication, and then they won't move around as much. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing in all cases, right? Because you want them to pay attention, but we also want them to move around. Yeah, yeah. And you even kind of made the case that we're, we might be creating, you know, like might be contributing to the obesity obesity epidemic amongst young people because we're giving them this drug so they sit still. It's exactly what you see in these mice when they're bred to basically be crackheads for physical activity. Like you can breed them really easily to, to like be just voracious 
runners. Where, and then if you take them away, they get depressed if you don't allow them to, to do their exercise. But then you can give them these drugs, and, and then they're cool with not exercising anymore. Hmm. So what what are the ethical issues that, that come up with all this new athletic uh, gene research? I mean, are, are teams, sports organizations starting to use genetic testing to figure out whether they should sign a player or whether they should, you know, tell us that player, well, you know, thanks, but we're going to, we'll pay you a little bit, but you can't play. Um, what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, there are, so sports teams are always using genetic information. They're just not looking at genes, right? Like whether they're measuring people's physiology, which is better because that's a combination of your genes and your environment. Um, but there are some kind of more, actual looking at genes starting. Like I know the Kazakhstan's Olympic committee decided they were going to start screening kids for certain genes, but I, I've seen some aspects of their program and it's basically nonsense. What they're going to do is they're going to look at these genes that matter, but have really small effect and you'd be better off like using a stopwatch or a bench press or something like that. Um, but the, the way where it is working in is for things that are related to like injury and illness. So there are, there are genes that are related to uh, the strength of collagens, which are kind of like, quote-unquote, the body's glue. And so people have certain versions, are more likely to tear tendons and ligaments. And so people being identified in that way, maybe they can do what, what some of these exercise geneticists are now calling prehabilitation, like strengthening to, to reduce the chance of those injuries. Um, there's a gene we know that is influences the ability to recover from brain trauma, so pretty relevant to things like boxing, MMA, and, of course, football. Um, and... Obviously, the, the most important thing is getting hit in the head for brain damage, but some people are more susceptible and less and take longer to recover and so on and so forth. And the very first brain that the researchers at BU, you know, who've made a lot of headlines for dissecting brains of ex-NFL players, the first one they ever did had two versions of this gene. Only 2% of the population have that, and so they're just not as likely to get over brain injury. Um, and there, there have been questions. In, in New York in 2002, actually, the medical commission that licenses boxers thought about requiring it and then decided that they couldn't, you know, it was too, too ethically fraught basically. Um, and, and some years ago, the, the Chicago bulls actually tested when they got Eddie Curry, they thought he might have this, this genetic heart condition that could cause him to drop dead on the court. And so they, they screened him for it, um, decided they thought he had it. He wouldn't submit to a genetic test they said, okay, if you have this, the, a gene for this, we'll give you, I think it was $400,000 a year for like the next 40 years, but we won't let you play anymore. And he refused to take the test, and they traded him based on that, based on his non-willingness to take a genetic test. And so that was kind of an interesting precedent there, but, but would not be allowed again today because of legislation to protect genetic information from your employer that's been introduced. Interesting. What about for just not, not high-performing at- athletes, but like parents who have kids, Right. As I was reading this, um, I, I have a four-year-old, and he's about to get to that age where he's going to start playing sports. You know, what do you tell your kid who's like, I want to be a professional football player? And, you know, you know your genetic history. And you're like, oh, you know, I don't know if that's really in the picture for you. And they, you know, or parents who spend lots in enormous. I live in, you know, suburban Tulsa, sort of affluent. Parents will send their kids to football camps for, you know, it costs mm-hmm. lots of money. And their kids aren't probably going to play D1 football. They might not even play, start on the high school football team here. What do, what do parents do? I mean, how, with this idea that genetics does, is not deterministic, but it plays a role for sure. Is there anything we can do to like help our kids like still enjoy athletics but still keep their expectations real or should we even 
Should we not even attempt to keep their expectations real and let them dream? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, genetics certainly plays a role. Um, I did some rough analytics that you know, I, I that but anyway, some very ballpark analytics that pro the children of pro athletes were about fifty five times more likely to get an NCAA scholarship in some sport, even if it wasn't the sport that their parent played. So there's you know presumably something being passed down there in terms of athleticism. And honestly, I think I've been big. I added an afterword to the book about specialization in youth sports because it's completely backfiring, actually. So it turns out that the best way to develop uh, elite athletes, not the exclusive way, but the best way is like the Roger Federer path or the Steve Nash path, where you play a whole bunch of different sports. You don't even, I mean, Steve Nash didn't even own a basketball until he was 13. Federer's parents forced him to keep playing badminton, soccer, basketball before he could focus in on tennis. And that's actually the norm. And so I think the piece of advice I'd give parents, because I don't, I don't want to discourage kids' dreams is one, let the kid have their dreams, right? Obviously we know there are a lot of parents who I think are well-intentioned, but are really playing out their dream. Um, and give the kids what's called a sampling period because elite athletes have that. So if they're going to be elite, it's more likely if they have that. And it's also a lot more likely they'll find the sport that fits their talents and one that they like. So basically I would, I would say allow them to develop the dream and, and give them that sampling period because the pro athletes have it. The, The problem now is that there are people who run a lot of leagues and travel teams and camps and AAU and everything whose economic interests are in conflict with giving kids the sampling period that produces elite athletes. And in fact, this, this Canadian researcher named John Cote has this really interesting research showing that the, the odds of becoming a pro athlete in any sport based on the size of your hometown has all gone down to really small hometown sizes because the kids in the big towns have to specialize too early just to like make a middle school team, you know? Yeah. And so with these good intentions have really backfired. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of the sampling period. That's great. Yeah. That's what it's like here. Uh, and I live right next to a suburb called Jinx, Oklahoma. This is one of the mm-hmm. top football teams. And like, they start the kids on like the high school football program when like they're in kindergarten, there's like a, a draft period. Like the kids get drafted and it's kind of, it's pretty nuts. So. <laughs> Um, anyways, I mean, if, it, if it made better athletes, ultimately, you know, I'd kind of be for it, but that's like not what most of the evidence said. I think the I think the evidence on golf is out. Actually, jury's out. Nobody's done like a good job studying it. But for most sports, uh, you know, the Australian Institute of Sport did some fascinating research where they showed that kids who play three different anticipatory sports, those are the sports where you have to react faster than your biology can, so you have to learn visual cues, like in, you know, in football or in soccer or in basketball, volleyball attacking sports basically they will then pick up any subsequent sport like that much more quickly than people who've only played one interesting well dave epstein where can people learn more about your work uh well definitely the the book the sports gene uh the website sportsgene.com but i haven't been uh, updating it lately and i'm always you know shooting my mouth off on twitter so that's one way <laughs> awesome well david epstein thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure thank you pleasure is mine our guest today was David Epstein. He is the author of the book, The Sports Dean, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. And you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.